0: Now we're in a series titled Ascend, and uh, we've taught the idea of ascend so far has been about onward, ongoing upward motion that has been the theme in play here. And uh, chapters one to three talk about looking up, and from chapter four onwards up to now, we've been looking at this idea of stepping up. And uh, we're going to look at that for the final time today. This is the last expression of stepping up that we'll look at, and then we'll look at a whole new thing beginning next week. And this last idea of stepping up has been built around the idea of what the Scriptures call, or what we understand to be, mutual submission. Uh, We've looked at that from the idea of husbands and wives. Uh, We looked at that last week with our children and parents and uh, with uh, particular attention to dads in that space. And uh, today, we're going to look at the last section of that, which is both hard to engage with when you first read with it, but also uh, transferable in many ways towards the end when we start thinking about it for ourselves. So uh, today's passage is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. It says this in NIV, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey christ obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you but as slaves of christ doing the will of god from your heart serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the lord not people because you know that the lord will reward each of you for whatever good you do whether you are slave or free and masters treat your slaves in the same way Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Mm. Now, as I begin speaking about this, I'm aware that the word slavery can bring up a lot of negative images. And uh, particularly, uh, I'm realizing now that we are on a very uh, public sphere when it comes to the YouTube channel and stuff like that. And and I reckon uh, if you're tuning in and you aren't involved in church or experienced with that side of things, you'd be going, all right, give us your take, Ken. Let's talk about slavery here. Uh, it's, we can think instantly of, you know, in our recent history, we can think of England and America, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Uh, you know, we think about, um, Africans who have been forced to work as slaves in horrific convi- conditions, that sort of stuff. We, uh, very, we have that etched into our own, uh, memories. And obviously the, the BLM movement right now, uh, doing their thing at the moment is, is, st- shows that we're still got residual, uh, stuff going on from that time. Uh, hopefully we can remember the heroes over those times. You know, we can remember Christians like Wilberforce and, and Lincoln and others who were, who were used of God to, to play a part in seeing these things be uh, ended as well. Uh, beyond the new world era of slavery, we also know there's a modern slave trade in play as well. And, uh, you know, some are forced into hard labor, others to the, to the sex trade and other avenues as well. We know that. Um, there's actually a, a recent study said that a, the third highest income stream of organized crime today is trading slaves. Um, and another study says there's roughly 27 million active slaves in the world even today. And uh, that's completely unjust. There is no way, in any way, shape or form, to justify any of that. And we don't go, gee, here's Ephesians 6, slave, make it work. No, we're in a different space now. It, It can be noted now. In the time that this letter was being written, that things were a little bit different in the economy of Ephesus at the time. Slavery was very common throughout the, the Roman Empire at the time. 30% of any major population was said to be a slave population. And uh, many were acquired as spoil or given to someone to cover a debt, or people, if they got, said, you know what, I've, instead of their version of bankruptcy, was to actually hand themselves over to be a slave at times too, to go, you know what, I can't keep up, I'm, I'm in over my head, I'll work for you and, until I'm free again. So there was a bit of that going on as well. Uh, they res- represented a degree of cost. So as a result, for the most part, slaves were in fact looked after in that setting. Uh, there is evidence that many received educations in that slavery time. Uh, they weren't all just house cleaners or mine workers or farm workers or you know, uh, these sorts of things. We know a load of professionals emerged from slavery. Our slaves did include physicians and teachers as well as tradespeople and craftspeople as well. Uh, some ancient writings indicate that an educated slave equaled a motivated slave. Uh, a motivated slave who knew that they could purchase their freedom would work hard for their master, and uh, so education to an owner was seen as a good investment. Uh, and in many cases, slaves received a remuneration, which was called a peculium. It was, uh, and it was not a racially motivated industry. The slave trade, the slave, tra- the slave Well, industry, if you want to call it that, actually involved people from all walks of life. So the idea of slavery was not nearly as much frowned upon like it is today. And and, uh, most households in Ephesus would have had at least one slave at the time that Paul was writing. Some people put themselves out there to be a slave, even if they didn't need to be, if they were born into the wrong family or so much so that he ended up putting a rule in place that you couldn't actually become free until your 30th birthday. So just think about that. By the time people were 30, they were actually made free of their slavery. They were, many times they had paid off the debts they owed or they had done the work they needed to do in order to be free of that, that, that side of things that would make them slaves in the first place. There was definitely abuse going on in amongst all that too. There was sexual abuse, there was uh, physical abuse, there was, there was uh, abuse of power for sure. And uh, some wanted slaves just so they could have bragging rights and go, oh, I've got slaves, hey, I've got the power trip. Um, all of it, we have to agree, was to some extent exploitation. In that all of them were denied a large portion of their humanity. Uh, they were not allowed to, slaves were not allowed to marry. Slaves often weren't allowed to keep the children they might have reproduced. Uh, they, they were uh, not allowed to be citizens, of course. Um, but at the same time, it was conceivable that it wasn't forever in their settings. We also note here that, that in Ephesus and in 1 Corinthians and in Colossians and others, that slaves are able to populate churches and engage in faith. Uh, if they were addressed in these letters, here Colossians and others well, it's because they were present in those churches. It wasn't a vicarious. Oh yeah, t- tell the slaves just you know th- throw throw some stuff their way. It was actually that they were present and engaged in the church. There are some in our modern time who have criticised Paul for not outright condemning the practice. But we do see some parts where he makes mention of the slavery issue. In 1 Corinthians 7, he calls for the church to not enter that arrangement if possible. You know, if, you're in, you know, if you're getting into debt, do all you can to avoid going into slavery. All right? He definitely talks about that side of things and also encourages slaves. If, you are in, if it's in your power to become free, if it's in your power to, to pursue freedom, then do that with all your might. Definitely, you do not want to remain a slave if you are one and you don't want to become one if you're not one. His letter to Philemon was all about forgiveness and actually granting a runaway slave his full freedom. Treat him not as a slave, but as a brother when he comes back to you. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he names specifically slave traders as workers of evil. All right, so he's not, he's definitely, we've got a, a line there with what one does not cross in this economy. I'm not convinced that he was ever in favor of the practice. But I also believe Paul's approach when we go, well, why didn't he make moves to kind of eradicate it or any of that? Why wasn't he the first Wilberforce or any of that sort of stuff? I believe Paul's approach to kingdom living was all about blooming where you were planted. Paul never called for the church to overthrow the system because the church was the minority in the block back when it was. They were the 51st religion on the block in Ephesus. They were the, they were the small group. They were the ones hated by the Roman Empire. They, they were not in this time, not in that first century space, able to have a voice in the empire. You know, It's not like the West. We look through a Western lens now. We look through the church now and its voice now and we go, well, why didn't Paul work towards that then? But, they were the absolute minority group in the Roman Empire. They were the persecuted group. You know, when it says to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves, well, they were the ones who can't speak for themselves. That's the reality of the church in the first century. They had a vicious dictatorship that didn't want anything. They called Christians atheists because they didn't understand a thing about them. And, uh, and instead, the church in the first century would be called to seek out ways, to actively look for ways to bloom in the places where life before Jesus had planted them. yeah, And to creatively engage with the world around them from that position. And wherever they found themselves, whether it be in a position of slavery, whether it be any of those spaces, demonstrate the value system of the kingdom of God right where you are. This was definitely true in first century politics. They were nowhere near positioned to do stuff like the West is today. It's true in a family setting. It was true where Paul was writing from. He was in a prison cell when he's writing this, remember that. And it's true for the environment where a slave and a master would interact in first century Ephesus. It was too soon for the church to be able to advocate for wholesale change. They had no public voice, no critical mass, no Western platform to, play, to campaign from. But they did have their faith. And no matter where they found themselves, they had the means to effectively live that out. And that's probably a good lesson for us. No matter where you find yourself, even if you're in unfavorable situations in your life, there is always the opportunity to live out your faith wherever you are. There is a place, uh, an opportunity to shine for the God, to shine your light, to shine what the to show what the kingdom of God is about through the way you respond to the circumstances you find yourself in. If things are less than ideal where you are, you can still demonstrate the kingdom of God where you are. And we see that in the most extreme here when it comes to Paul addressing slaves and masters and even how he's speaking from a prison cell going, I'm at the hands, I'm at the mercy of a dictator. And yet I can still demonstrate the kingdom of God from where I am. With all that said, let's examine the standards Paul presents for the slave and the master arrangement in that setting. In verse 5, he starts with intentional obedience. The word respect here is the same word used in chapter 5, where wives are told to respect their husbands. It's an idea of placing high esteem on another person. It's associated with the idea of honor. It's bestowing honor on other, th- on, on other people. Unlike the previous verse about wives, Paul adds emphasis to this by bringing in the Greek word tromos, which the NIV is translated as fear as well. Respect and fear. So Paul is advising slaves here to treat their masters with great honor and esteem, but also with care to remember their boundaries. They may have greater status in the kingdom of God, but your master may not be in on the program just yet. And in verse 6, we see a reminder to maintain personal integrity. Slaves were to be obedient at all times, not just when the master was watching. And this was simply because the greater master is watching at all times. Integrity for a Christian slave was a vital heart issue. We see this repeated in Colossians. We see this enacted even in the Old Testament with people like Joseph, who was actually forcing the slavery in Potiphar's household and still excels in what he does and becomes the leader of the house. And then there's a little thing called excellence. Paul instructs the Christian slave to bring nothing but their personal best to the settings in which they're being forced to work. Paul calls this working as to the Lord. That's a picture of living up to what Jesus would expect them to accomplish in that setting. If Jesus was their boss, if Jesus was their master in in earthly settings, what would your work standard look like? By approaching work in such a way, a slave would essentially be guaranteed of exceeding the expectations of their master. If you're you're living up to the expectations of Jesus, then surely you'd be exceeding the expectations of your earthly master. The old theologian John Stoke wrote this, Once Christian slaves were clear in their minds that their primary responsibility was to serve the Lord Christ, their service to their earthly masters would become exemplary. Then Paul turns his attention to Christians who happen to be owners of slaves. Now, in that time, this was in fact a thing. There were Christians who owned slaves in the Ephesian church. It's interesting to note here that Paul's instructions are not, masters, what are you even doing? Free them all. It would actually cause a lot of trouble if you were to kick them all to the curb. What would those people be doing with their lives once that happened? If they didn't know better, they'd be attached to another master. And Lord knows what would happen to them. It was a very different economy we're working with here. If these people were treating these people well and paying them well, where was their workforce going to come from if they actually kicked them out or said, be free? But what we do see is that Paul does restore some humanity back to the slaves here. Even if the government doesn't give them their humanity, even if a government says you're not a citizen, they are a citizen of a greater kingdom. So give them their humanity back. Treat them better. In this passage, it starts with a mindset of mutual treatment. Paul tells masters to treat their slaves in the same way. This means those who seek respect and integrity from their slaves are to offer this first to those in their employ. We then see a clear warning against the abuse of power here. This entire teaching on submission to each other acknowledges that there are levels of authority in life. Uh, Husbands over wives, parents over children, masters over slaves. But in every case, Paul is, is careful that those in the more authoritative role are aware of their responsibility to not abuse the role they hold. It's not about flaunting power, but lovingly leading others with integrity and respect. The idea of threatening a slave was about misusing power, using tactics such as intimidation or manipulation. And such behavior leads to relationships that get weaker and weaker. And that's not what a Christian master is all about. They're supposed to be building in relationships, not diminishing them. Have relationships in all settings that honor Jesus. This is true in the home, it's true in the workplace, true in the church. And finally, the Christian master is reminded that he himself is a man under authority. An Ephesian slave serves Jesus even as he serves his earthly master. And the earthly master also serves that same authority. He serves Jesus too. The reality is that both the Christian slave and the Christian master will be required to give an account to the same Jesus at the end. 2 Corinthians 5.10 shows us this. It says this, We must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Two apparent classes of people in earthly terms one great equalizer in the kingdom of God. We will all be equally judged by this same King Jesus. To me, this puts all on notice. No matter what we believe Paul's stance on slavery to be or not, that sort of verse definitely creates a sense of equal footing in the most ominous way for all. So let's consider this passage in light of how it might be considered now here in the West. First, as I've said already, slavery has never been okay. Even in its most generous application, it reduces people to property and denies humanity. We often speak of discipleship being a mere human anticipating a sense of perfect spirituality to come. In this light, we often anticipate some sort of disembodied eternal expression. But the reality is we are spiritual beings on the way to becoming the humans God had in mind in creation. We're spiritual beings on a human journey. In eternity, we will have a physical and incredibly human presence about us. The fact that Jesus ascended as a human and is the first fruit of the resurrection to come is evidence of this. So anything we do in this world of Christian ministry needs to be increasing the value of humanity, not taking away from it and dehumanizing people like slavery does. Side note, in light of all that we've talked about with mutual submission here, men, We also dehumanize women through abuse. So expecting submission without sacrificial love on your part is wrong. We dehumanize kids when we demand obedience but don't behave in a way worthy of that respect you crave. I've seen Christian men make demands on women and children without playing their part in this. Sometimes the idea of wives submitting taps into some sort of primal, misogynistic part of abusive men. I actually saw this firsthand many times in my teenage years in the first church I was in. If we're not careful in church, we can become a harbour for abusive and dehumanising behaviour, particularly if we don't ensure passages like this are properly understood. End of side note. Today's passage does not help modern Christians work through a slavery master relationship. There's no excuse for a slave to exist now. The Christian voice has, be, has a presence now that it didn't have back then. Our ministry today is, one of making, is not one of making this work because we've got no choice. The positioning of Christianity in the world today ensures that we can echo the call of Proverbs 31 to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. But the Ephesian economy of slaves and masters is for the most part different to that arrangement. And there is a lot of similarity in the Ephesian economy to our arrangement of the employee employer setting. So as I consider this passage, I can easily see transferable principles that carry over into our workplaces. And through experience, I've known these things to be true. Christian employees have some great tips on how to function in the workplace here. Employee, listen carefully. Your boss pays the bills and has a job to get done. So do what he says. Obey orders without grumbling. Be respectful of the one who bears the brunt of the business and takes all the risk. That risk involves putting themselves out there, hopefully gaining ongoing business. That risk also involves employing you, hopefully, hoping you don't mess it up for them. So as workers, let's ensure our posture with our employers is always one of respect, esteem, and honor. Behave with complete integrity. Don't do right just when you're being watched. Do right all the time. And Christian employee, do your best all the time. I firmly believe that Christians should be the hardest workers on any work site. They really should be employee of the month material any month. I believe laziness is actually a poor Christian witness. And for that matter, so is populating the unemployment line when there's legitimate work on offer. If you're a Christian and you'd rather earn the doll than flip a burger or clean a toilet, something about Christian character lacking there, friends. Whenever I found myself out of work in my younger years, I would always go straight to cleaning companies for work. And I'd always have instant starts because I was screaming for workers. I was more happy to get a minimum wage cleaning a toilet than to get the doll. This was important to me at the time because of my Christian witness and also because I held leadership roles and and service roles in the church. I couldn't be in any of those roles with integrity unless I had a job. If you don't have a job, you can't and probably maybe shouldn't lead those who can and will. So employees, be good ones. Or become one. We see some great tips for Christian employers here. First, don't abuse your power as a boss. Has anybody here ever had a boss that pushed their weight around a bit? Yep, yep. <laughs> I remember my first few weeks in a steel wholesale business. I'd made the big leagues. I'd got out of retail Got into the big leagues of wholesale and import. This was a 20K a year jump in salary. It was a much different environment I was in. And I was only 21 at the time. Learning curve is really steep. And uh, in those first few weeks of working in that place, I was making some mistakes along the way. Yeah, not huge ones, not costly, just attention to detail stuff. My boss was a little bit passive-aggressive. I didn't really have my assertive streak all that much at that time. And he used that to his advantage. There'd be times when I'd get called into his office first thing in the morning and his office had this big east-facing window right behind him. And he would call me in the office and he would deliberately... like he, I would, As I'm developing my assertiveness, I'm trying to go to this eye contact thing. I'm not going to break your gaze. So he decided to try to break me by standing up and standing right in that east-facing window so that the sun is shining right around him. And I'm like... (laughs) Eventually I got better at my job and I stayed clear of those encounters. But his methods are kind of burning into my retinas, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Remember this Christian manager, Christian business owner, Christian in leadership in the workplace. Abusing power dehumanizes those you lead and feed. Don't do that. It's not Christ like. We're reminded of this in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, and in that way was obedient even to death. Don't use power to your advantage, employers. And finally, ensure that Jesus remains your master, even in the domain you consider to be yours. Your office, your factory, your business, your areas of oversight. Sometimes we compartmentalize faith and life, and we do this without really thinking. Um, you know, and you know, but Christian worship, Christian discipleship involves having our faith be integrated with every area of our life. We don't leave Jesus at the door in our workplace. We bring him with us. We don't stop serving Jesus, you know, just because we're in church. You know, like we don't go, oh, I'm serving Jesus now, I'm serving Jesus now. Ah, I'm leaving church now, now that stops. Every attitude, every walk that we take, everything we do outside of these walls is worship and service to our Lord. Including what we do in our workplace. Your work in industrial relations, friends, is part of your lifestyle of worship. So, in the location you own or oversee, ensure that you submit it to Jesus as your master. Serve him with excellence by serving and submitting to those you lead and employ. So let's consider some real quick questions right now. First, how does our place in the workplace reflect the ministry of Christ in and around us? Second, in our submission to our bosses or our workers, is this a clear reflection of our reverence for Christ or not? Is there integrity and excellence in our work ethic? Is there fair treatment? And would people believe you were a Christian if they only had your career time to judge your faith expression? Would people believe you were a Christian if they only had your career time to judge your faith expression? The most dominant theme, the central idea of this passage is comes up in this verse. Serve wholeheartedly. As if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good you do, whether you are slave or free. Regardless of who puts money in our wallet, Jesus is master. Let's keep our focus on that, friends regardless of the authority we might carry in our workplace, remain submitted to the Lord in all that we do. If you're in an administration role, do this as if Jesus himself is the auditor of your work. If you're a janitor, do your job as if Jesus himself is about to use the toilet you're cleaning. If you're a chef, cook as if you're preparing a meal for the Lord. If you work at McDonald's, flip those burgers as if Jesus is about to order a Big Mac. If you do night fill, make every label sit to the front so Jesus can see and reach what he came to purchase. If you're in charge, value the humanity of those under you and serve them as if you are serving Jesus himself. Massive, tangible challenge in what Paul has written to us to explore this morning. Especially given the economic climate we find ourselves in now. Friends, the very first time I began to work on a theology of work was when I actually started becoming a full-time employee myself. I was 16 years old. I'm soon to be 46. And I was actually in that space where we were in the middle of that recession we had to have. It's the early 90s and everything's in recession, and I'm quitting school early, and everyone's saying, don't do that, you will never work. Apparently, my age group has the highest level of stress and is some of the most at-risk of mental health stuff, particularly men my age, are actually right now one of the highest risk factors of of self-harm and all sorts of stuff in in this country, and they say it stems from how we learn to function in that particular time frame. Right now, we're in a very economically, you know, unstable place right now we know that but i believe look i quit school early so did a number of my friends i got employed quickly and kept my job while these other guys did not i believe the principles i've learned out of scripture even in the idea of slaves and masters has over the years done me in good stead, and even while the world around me has been uncertain, God has always been faithful with my income and my employment. I've never claimed a dollar in my life. I've never, I've never been unemployed more than a week in my life. And I've always found God to be faithful as I've learned to understand that I'm serving Him in everything that I do. So I can only say this, friends. Be Right now, we are it's an unstable time. But right now, let's serve our employers without grumbling. Let's be the first ones to turn up at our workplaces. Even if you're on JobKeeper and getting minimum wage right now, be the first to turn up. Be the last to leave. Be the people that work the hardest. Be the people that stand out from the crowd. Not because your boss is watching, but because Jesus is watching. And the Jesus who is watching at all times will ensure that you are rewarded for that. I believe... The people with the work ethic, the people that stand out in the name of Jesus and serve Jesus in their workplaces in this time, with integrity and respect, are the ones that will actually be at the end of all this time, the ones still employed, still holding on to their pay packets. I have known this to be true. I've been in church for a long time, and in the midst of all that, yeah. You know, look, every I, I was in a church when I first, in that time in my teenage years and the sixteen-year-olds and that, where all these people were coming off the street getting cleaned up in a matter of weeks, completely unemployable, no-prospect people, suddenly in Jesus learning how to prioritize their lives and worship and that sort of stuff, finding jobs and actually becoming exemplary employees in that space and holding on to their jobs when other people were not. So I can only encourage you as a church at this time, let's be the godly example that our workplaces need at this time. Let's serve in those spaces faithfully Let's pray for our bosses, knowing that they're obviously and going to be under a lot of pressure right now. If you're a business right now, invest in your staff like never before. Serve them, you know, uphold them in prayer, um, you know, cut them some slack, understanding that their stress and your stress are not too dissimilar. And let's be, as Christians, exemplary bosses, exemplary employees. And I can believe out of that the Lord will shine his favor, his hand, put his hand of favor on us as we do that. So let's serve the Lord in all that we do and be faithful with that.